Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you joined. Today, we'll look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1. Then we'll break down the CPI just a little bit more. Then I'll sum up the pros and cons of the residential real estate investment strategy that we discussed last week. So stick with me today on The Whole Steward. Welcome to episode number 10, a big milestone for me. I'm so glad and thankful that you're listening. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, seriously, share it with a friend. That's how we get the word out right now. That'll be one of the best ways for you to help me continue to bring this content to you every week. Today, I want to start with Proverbs chapter 1. I want to bring you on a regular basis insights from Proverbs as it pertains to stewardship, since this is the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview, has to do with our stewardship. So starting in chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Solomon the wise, king of Israel, and a very successful businessman, by the way, calls us to wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight and receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. You can see here that God cares about dealing wisely. That means in the deals that you have with your fellow mankind and men and women that you come in contact with every day, to receive instruction in righteousness, which means to go about those activities in a right and proper way, and justice, what is proper and fair, and with equity, which speaks more to being equitable in your dealings as far as a fair trade for one thing or another. He's calling the youth to this, but that does not preclude older people, if you happen to be older. The wise increase in learning. So this is something where we can invest in our knowledge capital and our experience to gain wisdom, insight, and instruction in these things. Now, in case you're one of those who wants to skip over the fear of the Lord and just say, well, I'll do wise dealings and wisdom in my business and righteousness and equity as I see fit without the fear of the Lord, Solomon says that's not possible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So to begin to have true knowledge, you need to understand the Lord because he's the one who made all things. Everything belongs to him. The creation order is set by him He is 
the all-sovereign. He's the one who created the laws of the universe. He's the one that created mankind and told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to subdue it. So if you're going to do these things, the beginning of knowledge on how to do them would be to understand the foundation that God has laid in his word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Your knowledge is not complete without knowing the Lord. And the fear of the Lord just means that you recognize who he is. Sovereign creator, sovereign sustainer, Lord of all, worthy of praise, holy and just, so you fear him. It means you obey his commandments. And when it pertains to our spiritual life, You obey his commandment by believing in his son. Jesus said, anyone who receives me receives him who sent me. That is where true knowledge begins. But it does not end there. And Solomon will jump into a lot of detailed proverbs and wisdom insights into all things stewardship. We'll see those in coming weeks. But I wanted to just lay the foundation as he does in chapter 1 that we can and will receive wisdom and insight in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, which are very important to our business on a daily basis. Now, last week I gave you an example of inflation, that is, the eggs that we buy from the farmer's market. I told you that we used to pay $15 for a flat of 30 And the price went up to $19, and then it went to $22, and I said that that was 47% inflation. However, this week I was informed by my inventory manager, my beloved wife, that the eggs are back down to $20 a flat. So they came down $2, or a 9% decrease. Now, how could I possibly track the inflation rate when it's so volatile? And why wouldn't the CPI include something like this? And how can I say the inflation rate on the eggs was 47% when the CPI index, you may have heard of, the consumer price index, is somewhere much further below that? Well, that gets to the fact that the core CPI index does not include food. Let me read to you from the bls.gov. When you look at the consumer price indexes overview, you see sources of data. It says prices for the goods and services used to calculate the CPI are collected in 75 urban areas throughout the country and from 23,000 retail and service establishments. Data on rents are collected from about 50,000 landlords and tenants. The weight of an item is derived from reported expenditures on that item as estimated by the Consumer Expenditure Survey. Now, if you click on the Consumer Price Index news release, you see February 14, 2023. In January, the Consumer Price Index for all urban consumers increased 0.5% seasonally adjusted and rose 6.4% over the last 12 months, not seasonally adjusted. The index for all items less food and energy increased 0.4% in January, 
up 5.6% over the year. So I don't know about you, but this 5.6% and this 6.4% inflation does not quite cut it when it comes to what I'm spending money on on a daily basis. The consumer items that I pay for, such as food and energy, are not included in the same way that they used to be. Now, why would that be the case? Well, the government, as it borrows money, spends it into the economy, and creates inflation, has an incentive to not really be forthright about what the real rate of inflation is. High inflation rates do not bode well politically for the party that is in power. And since, as we discussed previously, this is a way to exert a silent tax on the people, it would make sense that they would want to hide that tax as best as possible. However, when you purchase your items at the store, it's very hard to say that this does not affect you as someone who is especially on a fixed income or is not getting raises to meet that inflation rate. Your effective income then is going down. At least the purchasing power of your income is going down. And they would have an incentive for you to not really realize that. Although it's kind of hard not to. Although most people won't spend the time to see what is the true inflation rate of my groceries. If I were to just continue to buy the same items at the store, 5.6% doesn't sound that bad. But if you look at the items that you buy... Is it really that much? Or is it more? There is a website that I like to reference called shadowstats.com. If you look at shadowstats.com, they show you the consumer price index as it's calculated today. But just so you know, in the past, there were items included in the CPI or the consumer price index that are no longer included today. And those items make the CPI today seem lower than they would have been if we were still measuring it as we were, say, back in 1990 or back in 1980. I encourage you to check out Shadows. I encourage you to check out ShadowStats.com if this stuff interests you. You can see how the two indices diverge when measured the way they used to be, say in 1980 versus today. The inflation rate then is a lot higher than the standard CPI that is broadcast today. As a, It's the broadest measure of consumer price inflation for goods and services. And it's very telling to see how that measurement has changed over time. So keep that in mind as you invest in various investment vehicles or hold U.S. dollars or whatever you choose to store your wealth in. When we come back, I'll dive into the pros and cons of the investment vehicle that I discussed last week, which is the single-family residential real estate rental business. If you're interested in that, you might be interested to know some of the pros and cons that I've come up with next on The Whole Steward. Hey there, it's Andrew. I pour a lot into the whole steward, and I'm so humbled you're listening. 
Did you know I regularly post new articles to our website? I also send the Holistic Approach to Wealth newsletter once a week, to which you can subscribe at thewholesteward.com slash newsletter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, would you share it with a friend or leave us a review? I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for listening. So last week we looked at a business model, an investment model that involves buying residential real estate, single family homes, and renting them out to those who need a place to live and want to pay you a monthly fee to use your property. Some of the pros to this business model might be it's very basic and sound. I mean, I pretty much just summed it up right there again. It's a cash-flowing asset, so it has an income stream associated with it. A lot of other investment vehicles that you might consider don't have that cash flow element. I just had a successful businessman tell me recently, you've heard the saying, cash is king, and it is, but cash flow is queen, and we all know who runs the castle. So think about where and how you can obtain cash flow. This business model, if done properly and you find the proper rent-to-value ratio, etc., you can garnish a cash flow from it. That gets added to your income statement, and now you have diversified your income streams. I would call it a semi-passive investment. People talk about, oh, passive income. You need passive income. Well, there's no income that's truly passive. However, once this is set up, it's a lot of work to set up, but once it's set up, it's fairly passive. We spend about one hour a month tracking our expenses and income just to make sure everything looks about right The property managers are doing a good job and just to see how the properties are doing. We also need to keep track of those for our tax return at the end of the year. So it's semi-passive, but we do give it a little bit of attention every month. And certainly when you are purchasing or selling a property, there is a lot involved. So keep that in mind. It is not nearly as easy as buying stocks. However, That could also be a pro because it precludes a lot of people from doing it. It makes it slow moving and steady because when somebody's going to buy or sell a property, they think long and hard about what and why they're going to do it because of the work that is involved. Also, there's a lot of financial considerations there. It is a long-term investment, which is partially due to the fact that The transaction costs need to be recouped, and if you sell too soon, then you will not have recouped those. Also, you do have full control because you can buy or sell it whenever you want, and you can also be influencing the value. Think about this. When you buy a stock, are you able to influence its value? But when you buy a property, you can do things to improve the performance of that property. You can fix it up. You can influence the type of tenant. You can optimize it to increase your cash flow. You can influence the value of the property. 
One thing that is very good is that it's asset backed. So you are buying a physical asset. You could think of it as investing in packaged commodities, right? You have wood and tile and drywall and stucco and copper and other types of metals, ceramic, etc. And they are all packaged up into this thing called a house. And they are very usable in that condition. People use it and they pay money every month to use it. You are investing in packaged commodities. This type of investing can be done remotely. In fact, I have never been to any of the properties that I have purchased. I have seen lots of photos of them and I have talked about them with my property managers and the rehab companies extensively, but I have never actually visited the property. And a lot of people might say, well, that's crazy. How could you buy a property and not even see it? Well, I say, well, you buy stocks and you didn't visit the company either. You know, you look at all the data around the property, around the team behind the property. What is their reputation? What market does the property find itself in? And can it garnish an income? That is the big question. And you can do that all remotely. If you're comfortable enough with it, you can do that. This type of investment is easily leveraged. If you want to use leverage, you can see some of the benefits of it if you listen to last week's episode. But it's easily leveraged because it's very standard in the industry. Banks will often let you go up to a 5 to 1 leverage. And it's backed by an asset. So if you were to, for some reason, default on the loan, which you should never do, and you should never have to do, the property is what is held as collateral. Also, real estate pays you in five different ways. That is cash flow, appreciation, tax benefits, amortization, which is loan pay down, and debt debasement, which is the loan losing value due to inflation, just like your bank account is also losing value due to inflation. So these are a lot of the pros that I have come up with, and there are others which we can discuss, but what are some of the cons? Well, to be frank, the transaction costs on real estate are fairly high. When you're buying a property, on the purchase side, it's usually about 5% of the purchase price in transaction costs. Those are your closing costs, as we would call them, And when you're selling a property, it could be upwards of about 10% of the value of the property because you also have, you have all those closing costs, but you also have the realtor fees, the brokerage fees when you sell a property. If you use a real estate agent to sell that property, they will usually get about 5 to 6% in commission. The seller pays the broker fees for both the seller and the buyer's agent. Another con might be that it's difficult to transact relative to other asset classes, for example, stocks. As I said, you have a lot of phone calls to make, a lot of emails. It takes a long time. You may be in escrow. You may have to jump through hoops to keep it in escrow and close on a property. It is very doable, but you have to put in the work, and so it's fairly difficult. Another con might be that it requires some involvement on a regular basis. 
like the bookkeeping and interacting with the property managers, as I mentioned before. This type of investing requires knowledge and skill. It's not just a click and forget type of an investment. If you do this type of investment, it's because you want to be in charge. You want to be in full control. You want to leverage the knowledge and skill that you have to get a better return. But it does require that, and so you need to learn how to do it. If you don't have that knowledge and skill, don't let it scare you away from trying it out because you need to first do the right thing if you believe it is the right thing for you to do and then learn to do things right. You can, so to speak, learn on the job. You will make mistakes inevitably, but those types of lessons are the best lessons. Let's say you lose $5,000 on a real estate transaction. As you're learning to navigate the investing strategy that you're forming, look at it as a $5,000 lesson. You could have paid five or $10,000 to go to a seminar, but instead you're really actually doing the thing and you're making mistakes along the way, but you either pay for profits or lessons. If you look at it that way, you're going to learn very quickly and very steadily. Don't be foolish, though. Learn as much as you can the proper way to do it, but then you can also learn on the job. Another thing about real estate is that it's very slow moving. It is kind of like molasses compared to stocks. What drives the prices up and what drives them down is very slow moving. It's kind of a trailing indicator of the economy. If companies are not doing well, that leads to layoffs, which leads to people not having as much income, which leads to the inability to pay rents or purchase prices or purchase houses for the prices that they were previously. And so eventually that trickles down to perhaps a dip in either the incomes or the purchase prices. However, the same is true on the upside. When the economy is roaring and people are getting paid more, they can buy more, they can spend more on the asset class, and it drives the prices up. But it's sticky because real estate also has a memory. When people are looking to sell their property, they are looking at what we call comps or comparison sales. And so you're looking as a buyer at last month's sales and you're saying, well, this other house in the neighborhood sold for this price. So I expect to sit. So I expect to pay about that same price or maybe just a little bit more. On the flip side, if prices are going down, the seller is looking at what prices are in their neighborhood, what the properties are selling for and saying, well, my neighbor just sold this property for X. And so I should be able to get X, but the market may not be meeting that. And so those buyers are holding on for something that was in the past, but now prices have come down. It takes a while for those sellers to figure that out and say, oh, I'm not going to actually sell my property for X I'm going to have to sell it for why. So that's a little insight into why the real estate prices 
are slow moving. That can be a bad thing if you want to get in and get out quick. It's not going to work very well for you. If you want a fast return, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. However, slow moving can also work in your advantage because you can kind of see a train wreck happening in slow motion. And the savvy investors will be watching that and saying, hey, I need to get out now as this starts to unfold. Because it's a long-term investment, you should not expect to be able to break even in the first one or two years. The typical hold time for an investment like this might be five to seven, eight, or ten years. You could certainly hold it longer than that, and if you had a loan on the property after 30 years, you will own the property outright. However, that's not the best way to grow at the maximum rate. But depending on your investment appetite, that may be a strategy that you follow. One last thing is, yes, you have full control, but you are still dependent on other professionals. Think of them kind of as your employees. You are dependent on the property managers, the tax professionals, the people who make the property investment viable. Those people may or may not do a good job. You need to be very careful who you hire to do the work for you. And so that takes some wisdom and some prudence. It also carries with it some risk. If they aren't doing a good job, that may damage your return on investment. I could argue, though, that stocks are very much the same because if you're buying stocks, you're dependent on the management team of the company to do a good job in managing the company and running the company. In this case, you can have, for the most part, full control over the professionals that you choose to work with. If you're interested, shoot me an email. I can refer you to some of the companies that I work with. Now, as you know, I do not give investment advice. I just give you ideas to help you make your own decisions if you so choose. You need to do your own due diligence in any investment that you're making. My wife and I do a lot of research. We talk about our strategy and write it down on a regular basis. And we work together to accomplish this. These ideas are just one way, one very tiny niche that you could find success in. However, there are many, many ways to invest in real estate and other businesses. In a much broader sense, I'm just trying to inspire you to think outside the box for where you store your wealth, how you grow your wealth, and to be encouraged to do so because Otherwise, you are losing value, and that value was created by things that God gave you to manage, and so the store of value is certainly a way that you can manage what God has given you to the best of your ability. So I hope that you're inspired to look into these things, and shoot me an email if you have any questions. I really want to answer some questions. I'm just itching for one of you, and you know who you are. Just send a question to me. I'll answer it on the show if it would be helpful for everyone. Next week, we'll jump into a new and exciting topic for the whole steward. That is energy in economics. What's the impact of energy on economics? That'll be next week on The Whole Steward. Now that you know more, go out and grow more.
All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy. So you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.